Esther, cooking in my kitchen is is has become a bit of a dangerous uh, occupation. Well, I consider cooking to be a dangerous occupation no matter what, but <laughs> what is your experience? Um, so there was a time a uh, f- couple months ago where I accidentally cooked with dish soap. <gasps> <laughs> Say more. Say more words. All right. So um, I had gotten home from work and uh, I had had some uh, pork that I was going to cook up and use for mixing in with my ramen noodles because that's like my favorite dish is ramen noodles. And I just go about my stuff and I'm like, okay, I got to cut this pork up a little bit smaller so it works well. And so uh, I didn't have a completely clean cutting board. So I pulled one out that was just sitting inside the sink going, yeah, I just cut vegetables with this the the other night. It's fine. No big deal. And I kind of look at it and I'm like, oh, there's something blue on there, but never mind, Carlita. <laughs> I don't think about it because Carlita has been doing, um, like, dyeing, has been trying to dye some material for a project she was working on. Um, so I don't think anything of it. I go through, I cut it up, and then even worse, then I take, so I salted everything before I cooked it up, mm-hmm. and I start, like, just mixing all the salt in with the knife and I'm like man this stuff like there's seems kind of like gluey but I no big deal (laughs) anyway so I start cooking it up and I'm like why does this smell funny again does not occur to me to like stop what I'm doing (laughs) you just like keep soldiering on and I'm really I really admire this in you you're just like determined to get that ramen i am and i just like cooking and (laughs) you know i think i'm i'm an amateur chef and i try to prove it so eventually what happens is i go ahead and make my ramen and with this pork that i've cooked and i'm sitting down and i'm like god this tastes soapy like did i not get this (laughs) did i not like clean this bowl well enough like rinse it off like did i leave uh soap in this and um carlita gets home and i'm like carlita did you wash this bowl because she also uses an excessive amount of soap when she um (laughs) does dishes and i'm like she's like no i didn't even wash that bowl that was you and i'm like i can't figure this out it tastes like soap (laughs) and she goes oh well let me try it and she tastes the pork and goes yeah and then she like looks at the counter and she goes did you use that like cutting board i'm like yeah she's like there was dish soap on it i'm like what (laughs) she's like yeah when i would i had to measure out amount of dish soap to put in my mixture for dyeing my material and it spilled on the cutting board, which is why I put it in the sink. I didn't think you were going to use it again. And I'm like, oh. 
So there is the story of cooking with dish soap. I mean, I just love that at no point in this journey did you let the fact that there was like blue gluey stuff keep you from your ramen. Like, I think I've learned so much about you in this anecdote, most of which is Melissa is determined and nothing will stand between her and her ramen noodles. Hey guys, this is Melissa. Welcome to the People Who See podcast. We ask questions often avoided and listen to stories often unheard. We believe great stories and great questions allow us to see our faith differently. Thanks for joining the conversation. Let's dive in. Well, hello, friends. Welcome back to the People Who See podcast. I'm Esther, and I'm here with the beautiful Melissa. Hey, guys. Oh, she's so chipper. Um, And today, I am feeling, wow, I'm feeling a wide variety of emotions today because we're doing something a little bit different. And today, Melissa is interviewing me, which is simultaneously very exciting and also makes me feel like I want to throw up just a little bit because I hate talking about myself and I hate being the center of attention but thank goodness Melissa's here she's gonna keep me calm it's gonna be great but the reason I'm so excited is because she's gonna be talking to me about well we're gonna be chatting with each other about my work for my doctor of ministry degree So for the last year, I have been completely immersed in this journey of getting my doctorate. It feels like I'm running a marathon or perhaps climbing Mount Everest. And now that I'm towards the end and I can like see the finish line, I can see the summit. I feel like everything in me is just like, no, you can't do it. You'll never cross the finish line. But anyway... You don't need to know this. By the time you hear this, I will have crossed the finish line and everything will be fine. Um, But today we're going to chat about what it is I've been doing with the last year of my life. Um, What it is, why I decided to study it, why it means so much to me, and why I'm really excited to have this be something that I offer to the world. And Melissa has been a part of this whole journey. Um, She has actually walked with me as I do this and she's contributed to it and experienced it and so I'm really excited to be talking about that today. But without further ado, let's go. Melissa, bring it on. What have you got for me? Equal amount of nervousness is what I'm bringing to you. Yes. Because while... It makes me feel so much better. (laughs) Esther loves to interview others and host. There are many reasons why I am the behind the scenes partner in this podcast. (laughs) And thank God for you being the behind the scenes partner, because otherwise we would literally never have an episode. Like they would just never come out. Yes. And I'm catching up finally. So it's good. And so I'm excited (laughs) uh, to try my hand at this. 
So as Esther said, yes, I actually got to be a part of uh, one of the initial uh, cohorts for the beloved uh, cohort, which is was group spiritual direction. And I loved it. But I'd like to know um, in pursuing your, your doctor of ministry, like how did you come to this as your work and what was that journey like? What a great question, Melissa. You're killing it. Um, gosh, I, okay. So I feel like I need to start off by saying I'm such a high context person that I love to give some background to the things that I do. But also I really genuinely do feel like choosing to study this arose out of like my whole life story. So I'll try to give a quick recap of how this came about. Um, So I guess for a little bit of clarification, I should say, like Melissa said, my project for my doctor of ministry degree was designing and running a group spiritual direction cohort called um, Beloved, the Spiritual Discipline of Honoring the Self. And so this really started for me, gosh, I think I would trace it back to the way I grew up. Um, So I grew up in a very, like, conservative, fundamentalist um, home where there was a very specific vision of sort of, like, what I needed to be in order to be a good Christian woman. So, you know, when you're a kid... You just do what you need to do to be, like, loved and accepted. And you do what you need to do to please the people in your life. And so I really knew that if I was going to be the kind of person I was supposed to be, quote unquote, um, I needed to be just, like, very quiet, very perfect, um, and very small. And I needed to be this very specific version of, like, a good Christian woman. Um, So I was very good at that growing up. Like I grew up being the good kid, the perfect kid who never caused any problems. I just sort of like cruised on this conveyor belt and I took the role that I was supposed to have and I played it very naturally. Um, And looking back at that now, I very much see that that was like a mask that I put on of just like I and this little kid, I want to be loved and I want to be accepted. And I know that this is who I need to be in order to be loved and to be accepted. And so that's what I did for like the first 25 years of my life. Um, I just existed as this person. And then when I was like 25, 26, I had what I call a spiritual awakening, um, where I feel like I had this very, not dramatic, but like very specific, very memorable encounter with God, where I heard God say to me that I have a voice and I have a story and I need to use my voice and I need to tell my story. And looking back at that now I see I see that this was sort of a moment where I woke up 
and I say mm-hmm. that's kind of where I heard the voice of my my real true self for the first time um and it was kind of the first time that I started to understand that like the person that I am matters like the person that God had created and intended me to be really did matter and so I started on this journey of sort of like dismantling my life and exploring who I was actually supposed to be um and so it eventually led to me um enrolling in a master's degree at Sioux Falls Seminary and at the end of that master's degree I chose to write a book to tell my story and so as I was writing this book and kind of unpacking all of the ways that I had grown up and then I had sort of started to come to know myself um, it centered around this term of garden self Um, so garden self as in like the garden of Eden so it became this image in my mind of who I was and who I was intended to be by God um, before I sort of learned all of these ways to cover up that person, right? So like in the in the garden, you have this image of Adam and Eve being naked and unashamed. Like they are with God in this vulnerability and nakedness of pure presence and they're not ashamed of that and then in this fall narrative we see them learn shame and we see them start to cover over the people that they are with these fig leaves and that was sort of how I started to see my own story of like I was a certain person and then at some point I learned that that person wasn't right or wasn't good enough and so I started to like cover that person over with all of these layers of shame really of like false self and masks and in that process I had like completely lost sight of who that person was like I couldn't hear that person I wasn't even aware that that person existed and then after my spiritual awakening like I heard that voice and I heard God say that that person mattered and that living as that person, as like who I was intended to be was actually really important and that was actually going to be a really important part of like my calling and my life. And so I I wrote this story, I called it my garden self, Um, I talked about being sort of like covered over with these layers of false self and I remember I have this very vivid memory of I had sent the book to one of my mentors um, to kind of like read and edit and just like give feedback on and he called me immediately and he was like Esther this is amazing this reminds me of Thomas Merton and I was like great who is Thomas Merton (laughs) and he was like you should read this book and he talks about the self and all these ways that you're talking about and I was like great 
that's awesome. I really just want to finish my master's and like be done with this. Um, and so I, I like bought the book he told me about, I tried to read it and it, I was like, whoa, I don't, I don't know what this is. I don't get it. And I just kind of like <laughs> put it away on the shelf. Um, and so I think I really thought that's like where this journey was going to end a little bit of like, I'm coming back to my garden self. I know myself really well. I like got really into the Enneagram and <laughs> learned all about myself. And, and then I think like, I was like, okay, I'm done. Like I did it. Found my garden self. Yay. Um, and then, you know, God laughed and said, ha ha, there's so much more to come. Um, so I had, um, I had this great plan my life and <laughs> and giggle giggle that fell apart um so when my life fell apart again and my plan just like did not pan out at all um I decided to get a doctorate because that's what normal people do when their lives fall apart is they go get advanced degrees um but I did this, okay, I did it because in my beautiful plan that fell apart, I was looking for a way to help other people go on the same journey that I had gone on. Like, that was my big passion. I wanted to help them find their garden selves. And it hadn't ended up working in this, like, context that I was in but so when I started my doctorate, I was like, okay, I need to know if this is just me. Like, I need to know if this is something that's just important to me or if this exists, like, elsewhere in Christianity. If other people are talking about this, if other people are experiencing this, and if, if I can make this something that, like, other people can experience, too. So that was sort of like the question that I walked into my doctorate with. And then I discovered that, oh my goodness, this is everywhere. Like, mm -hmm. so I, the garden self term, I'm sure someone else has said that. Like, I, I'm sure I'm not the first person to use that phrase. Um, but that wasn't something I was seeing. People were, there's this idea of um, the true self, false self. And that is everywhere in, like, contemplative Christianity, in all of these, like, voices that I was just following, like, a breadcrumb trail of, like, they were speaking my language and they were saying it in beautiful ways. And it was just, like, I was just, like, digging, like, deeper and deeper into all of this. Um, so, yeah, I, I just kind of spent, like, <laughs> five or six months completely immersing myself in this and experiencing it and just kind of evolving my language from garden self um, and then from to this like true self false self idea that I was reading about and then eventually that true self false self language is what evolved into um, this language of belovedness that I ended up using in the cohort. So, you know, you talk about those terms, like the true self and the false self and then belovedness, like 
How do you define those at this point, like after your study? Ugh. They're so they're so hard to define in some ways. Um, I think they really like <laughs> they almost like reject definition. Um, and that, when I was first studying this, that was like so frustrating because I was like I'd be listening to like a Richard Rohr lecture and he'd be talking about the true self false self and then like eventually he would just get to this point where he'd be like but this is a great mystery and no one understands it and I was like well Richard (laughs) I want to understand um but I will do my best to sort of put this into helpful language um so I think in a lot of ways for me Starting with the false self is almost a little bit easier um, because ultimately the false self is nothing um, because it's not real. So my favorite term that I've heard for the false self is from Thomas Keating and he calls it the homemade self. Um, So basically it helps communicate this idea that the false self is not like the bad parts of you. It's not like your sinful nature, quote unquote. It's not the things you don't like about yourself. Like the false self is really just the version of yourself that you create yourself based on what your context and culture and like family situation tells you you need to be in order to be loved and accepted so it's really built on this idea that like everyone has this fundamental need to be loved and to belong like those are like basic fundamental biological needs right and we want to have those needs met and when (laughs) when they're not necessarily met in like this unshakable like really fundamental way that we can sink into and have safety in then we become whatever version of ourselves we think we need to be in order to be loved and accepted and so but ultimately like it's it's like this cheap copy it's that homemade version of like (laughs) I don't know I was trying to come up with a good example of this um, is it like the nailed it? Yes. <laughs> yes, that's perfect. <laughs> We're like out there, there exists this gorgeous, like perfection version. And then there's just like this ugly, like papered together, like glue, like, ugh. anyway, I don't have a great mental image for it, but. The nailed it is perfect. Um, Yeah, so it's not bad. It's just, it's just not you and it's not real. Like it's not the truest version of you. Um, But it is kind of a phase that we have to go through. I think like we build a false self and some people I think would say that that's almost like a necessary a necessary journey like you to go on that and then eventually you kind of start to unlearn that um so 
the true self, I guess, on the other the other side of the coin is again, it's really slippery to try and define. Um so initially when I was studying this, I would have defined the true self as sort of the person you were created and intended to be. Um so it would have been a lot of like self-awareness, self-knowledge, um like knowing who you are and sort of having like the confidence or the centeredness to exist as that person, you know, across contexts, across like who you're with. Um, But then I really (laughs) felt like I was wrestling with this idea of like trying to differentiate between what was true and what was false. And I think I was trying to like I was like wrapping myself up in knots trying to say like well what's what's really like true about me like if I'm if I'm an introvert is that my true self um but what about the parts of me that like I don't like that do need to sort of be like transformed or healed like is that my true self or is that my false self like I was just having a lot of difficulty wrapping this up in language and sort of understanding like what is true and essential and what's not um and that's when I had this kind of aha moment um I again like really clearly remember the exact moment when I felt like this clicked for me because I was like I was walking from my car towards my office and I had been like (laughs) reading something all morning so I was just like really in my head thinking about all of these things about like what is true what is false and I just had this moment of like oh I think the true self ultimately is the truest thing about you and the truest thing about you is that you are the beloved of God. Hmm. Because ultimately, so I believe that the true self is sort of like a received self. Um, So it's, I believe that you can only find your true self in God, that it's sort of like hidden with Christ and God, and it's just this gift that's like continually poured out on you and so it's not something that you earn or really like quote-unquote deserve it's like unshakable it's objective it just is like true love and the true self just is and so I I came to call it belovedness because um, of the example of Jesus. So the truest thing about Jesus was these words that were spoken over him at his baptism that like, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And so I think the truest thing about every human, because Jesus came to teach us how to be human, right, is that we are the beloved child of God 
with whom God is well pleased. And then that's sort of, that's that need for love and belonging, right? Is like your true self has that need already and unshakably met. And so I think it's when you embrace that true identity as the beloved of God that you can begin to release that false self because you don't, you just kind of don't need it anymore. Does that make sense? Yeah, like, it's crazy that you, like, find sort of this answer about the true self in, you know, belovedness. And so, like, where did that sort of take you next as far as, you know, as you kind of have this understanding of the true self, false self, and this belovedness, like, creating this cohort and, um, like, how did, like, you finding that sort of lead you uh, in setting up the cohort? Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I, as I was doing my doctoral program and my research for that, I was also um, in this two-year training to become a spiritual director. And I just felt like, I mean, I've, hopefully people who listen to the podcast will have heard about spiritual direction before. Because it's sort of like, it sort of guides everything that Beth and I and Melissa, as people who see, it guides everything that we do. Um, and it just feels like, it felt like such a breath of fresh air to learn about spiritual direction. And I think what I was realizing as I was, as I was making these connections for myself through this like intense time of research (laughs) and I was thinking about like how can I how can I communicate this and like sort of translate it um to people who don't want to sit around reading really like intense (laughs) contemplative spirituality books by like old white trappist monks um so how can I like <laughs> communicate the, like the 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 heart of this um in a way that's relevant but also like how can I not just like teach a class because what I was realizing after my own journey was that like you don't find the true self in a classroom like you can't you can't find your belovedness just in your head like you can't say like, oh, I realized I'm the beloved of God, so now everything's different. Like you have to <laughs> you have to sort of experience it. And it's such a it's such a personal journey that's like unique to each person. And so there's no way to just have like a formula of like follow these four easy steps and you will find your true self. <laughs> you know, like <laughs> So I'm just like wrestling with all of these things and and I'm learning that sort of spiritual direction holds 
space for people to go on their own journeys. It allows them to turn inward. It allows them to listen to what God is speaking to them as because it's probably not going to be the same as what God is speaking to the person next to them or what God spoke to me. Um, and so spiritual direction just kind of allows for that really like personalized work. Um, and it allows for integration um, through sort of these different like spiritual disciplines or spiritual practices that are usually a part of spiritual direction. So I kind of settled on like, okay, I want this to be group spiritual direction that is just like this circle of trust that provides like safety and non-judgment and lets people walk together towards, you know, learning about the true self and the false self, um, hopefully learning how to like recognize and let go of that false self, um, and then sort of learn to listen to the false self. No, wow. Listen to the true self. We don't want to listen to the false self. Listen to the voice of the true self, like recognize that voice, and then ultimately hopefully be able to start to see themselves through eyes of love as God sees them as the beloved of God. So I ended up sort of designing this six-week cohort um, where there'd be um, a lot of, each week would have a spiritual practice um, so that Again, like participants could sort of integrate this. They could practice it on their own. They could take it with them because like six weeks is not long enough to transform anyone. Like (laughs) six weeks is enough to sort of spark something, take like the first step on a journey. Um, So there'd be there'd be spiritual practices. There'd be some teaching just because, you know, there was some stuff I wanted to be able to communicate from what I was learning. Um, But what I really learned, especially as I started walking through the cohort, was that most of it was going to just be sort of holding space and asking questions and then just sort of like offering a question or a thought and then just letting people process through that together and hopefully (laughs) I don't know I just I just realized really quickly that like my voice wasn't the most important voice in the room and again that's that's a tenet of spiritual direction that like the spiritual director's voice isn't supposed to be the primary voice it's supposed to be the voice of the holy spirit Mm -hmm. and in group spiritual direction, it's supposed to be the voice of the people, the other people in the room. Um, so, yeah, I guess, does that answer? Does that answer yeah. your question? Yeah. No, that's really good. And I was just like, I like hear this sense of, yeah, like, I know how important spiritual direction and spiritual listening has become a part of this process. Um, and I'm 
like really intrigued uh, by the idea of group spiritual direction um, in that it's not necessarily you as the spiritual director being the primary person, but actually the community hearing and listening. Um, and so I'm kind of, I'm curious, like, how did you sort of decide on the group structure, but also like, who were you thinking about when, of like, including when you started developing this project? Yeah. Um, I think I have so many thoughts in response to this. Um, I think in a lot of ways, I don't know if this is right or not, but I think in a lot of ways I was thinking about people like myself, um, you know, like somewhere along the line in all of this. I did sort of realize that, like, I was doing this for myself in a lot of ways. Like, I I think I went on this journey of sort of searching for my belovedness or searching for belovedness in general because I was searching for my own belovedness because I was, I, I had never experienced a sort of like love that wasn't contingent upon anything um not to say that I wasn't like didn't have a wonderful childhood and wasn't deeply loved and all those sorts of things um caveat um I just I just realized that like what I learned from the way I was raised and especially from my faith was that like I needed to be perfect to be loved and I needed to like achieve to be loved and I needed to earn and be worthy of these sorts of things and so I don't think I could have articulated that to you like even when I started this journey um but I think it's something that, like, once I started to realize, like, oh, this, this belovedness isn't changed based on what I do, what I have, or what others think about me, it's, it's really started to change things for me. So, yeah, I think there was a sense in which I, I was... I think this is, like, a big enough idea to serve anyone, right? Like, I think everyone develops a false self. I think everyone has to, everyone is the beloved of God, and so, like, everyone can go on this journey. But I think when I was designing it, I was thinking about people who were raised in Christian contexts, because that's my audience. That's the audience of people who see, um, is people who have a background in faith, but who are either I call it like the outer perimeter of <laughs> Christianity where like if you're still on the inside and sort of still identifying as a Christian you're like you're definitely dissatisfied you're probably like 
wounded by some things. You're probably, you don't really feel like you fit. Um, and so you're just kind of like hanging out on that outer edge, like not really sure if you're going to stay or not. But like you, you want to in a way. Or like the people who've kind of taken that step across the perimeter and like no longer would even identify as a Christian, but who like maybe miss it or like still love God, but hate the church or like love God, but hate certain theologies. Like that, that's the person I was speaking to in all of this Um, by saying like, I get it. I don't think (laughs) the Christian church specifically the like evangelical conservative strands that I have been a part of I can't speak for all streams of tradition so like just putting that out there I understand that like we've been taught some really terrible things about ourselves in the church um we've been taught that the truest thing about us instead of being the beloved of God is that the truest thing about you is that you are sinful, that you are totally depraved, that you are broken, that the fall made you this inherently sinful being, and that is your truest identity. Like, that is very much what a lot of us have been handed. And so it's like this shame-based connection with God where it's like you're so ugly and so awful and the only person who could ever love you is God so God loves you but it's like this really pitying love of like ew gross I'm disgusted by you and your sin but my son had to die so I guess I love you like it's just this like it's just this really and obviously I'm being this is like a straw man version of this argument obviously um But I think, like, I just, I started to realize, like, that's really icky, and I don't like that, and I don't think we need to tell people that they're so awful and ugly and just, like, shame them in order to get them to, like, believe in God. Like, I don't think that's good news, and so, like, I think but I think that sort of, that message drives us. And it it either drives us to, like, burn ourselves out and perform and, like, exist in this mask of perfection inside of Christianity. Or it drives us to just, like, walk away and say, like, no. If you're going to ask me to give up myself or, like, either choose myself or God, like, I'm going to choose myself. And I'm going to choose to believe that I'm not inherently ugly and awful and so I'm just gonna like walk away and believe that I hear you saying like this is for those people that really need to hear that they're beloved yeah because what we've been taught in our churches is like the opposite of that is that like you said is this like gross feeling of like God loves us but he kind of thinks we're disgusting like he's somewhat still repulsed by us um rather than this sense of like you know we are 
what he created and what he created was good and beautiful and beloved. And that's why he wants us to be in relationship with him is because, you know, he is our giver of life and our father, um, in that sense. Um, and so, yeah, I think that definitely is like that understanding of like who this was created for and who you kind of thought about when you were thinking about who to include, um, at least in the initial, or did you think about more specifically about who to include in some of those initial groups? I think, I think the other thing I will say about that is I think this work is especially meaningful to people who have been told that like something about their personhood is sort of inherently lesser um so like specifically groups of people like women like people in the lgbtq plus community like people like maybe people of color people who are disabled like people who don't necessarily fit really nicely into our at least in in some of my experiences again I'm sure there's people who are doing this well but like who don't fit nicely into those boxes that like the church or Christianity has said are kind of like the right kind of people quote unquote right because I think that was a feeling that really drove me into this work was like this constant feeling of like not being the right kind of person and wondering ultimately like it sounds silly saying it out loud but it was like a very genuine thought of like does God love me less because I'm not like that person like who seems to really be killing it in (laughs) in like church ministry and they're and they're really extroverted and loud and charming and like high achiever and like that sounds so silly but at the same time like that was all I ever saw celebrated in like the church was and like I think I genuinely walked away from that thinking like I I don't matter as much (laughs) because I'm not that person and And that's, like, on the low end, like, the very low end of possible, like, (laughs) being told that your personhood isn't, isn't the right kind of personhood to be accepted by God. Like, I can't even imagine the way some people have been made to feel about that, you know? And so, yeah, I think, I think that was very much an idea that I carried with me around all of this work too i mean this this definitely is seems like a very meaningful work and i know like i experienced this as well just how powerful um this work was but like going forward what significance does this like idea of belovedness or uh the spiritual direction piece like what do you think that looks like for the church or christianity as a whole I think, so this kind of goes back to what I was saying, but I think I see this as an invitation for the church and for Christians 
to just like take a moment to re-examine what we're saying about the self. Um, one of the one of the things that really drove me as I did all of this work was um, Richard Rohr in one of his books was writing about the true self and he just said like you have to get the self right you have to get the self right and that I just felt like that ran on a loop like as I was looking at all of this because I think I I think that Christianity has gotten it wrong in a lot of ways, but not necessarily mm. – it doesn't have to be that way. Like, we don't have to see the self in the ways that we've always seen it. We don't have to think that the self and, like, honoring the self and caring for the self is antithetical mm. to loving God. Um. Like, another one of the big questions that drove me was, like, do I need to lose myself to find God? Do I need to lose the person that I am in order to be a good Christian? Because I think I think we've gotten this wrong, not necessarily out of, like, it, ill intent, but because we're, like, we don't understand what we're actually saying. <laughs> Like, and we're, we're just, like, very imprecise about it. And so we take this understanding of, like, yes, you have to surrender to God. Or, like, I have to die to myself. I have to take up my cross mm -hmm. and follow Jesus. And so, like, I think I understand the theological case that says, like, yeah, sacrifice your old sinful self and put on the new self in Christ. Like, this all seems very straightforward. And so I understand sort of how you come to this idea. But I think what I'm saying and what obviously others, I'm, I'm speaking, I'm standing on the shoulders of others when I'm saying this. But what I'm saying is that, yes, you do have to sacrifice something. You do have to die to a self, but it's not the true self. It's the false self. So like when you when you shed this false self, it's a death, right? It's a death of a version of yourself that existed. And that needs to be mourned. And that does need to be sort of sacrificed to God. That needs to be surrendered when you come to God. But ultimately, like it's it's only this surrendering of like this cheap false nailed it version of yourself and actually you only discover your true beloved beautiful self in God and so that's that's like what's changed everything for me is that like I <laughs> just as a personal anecdote I guess I've always hated the word surrender because I the way that word was used in my life and in my story was like you have to surrender 
everything about yourself. You have to just like completely become this empty shell that only exists to serve God. And I hated that (laughs) because it was awful and it was harmful to me in so many ways. And so I was really afraid of this idea of like surrender. And so what I've been working out sort of in my own life is this idea that like I can surrender to God because my truest self, the real beloved me is in God. And so like (laughs) God's will isn't separate from like what is best for me. I just have to be really precise and careful about how I define me. Like I have to, I have to get the self right. And so like, sometimes I feel like I'm talking in circles because I'm like really, but like the language just has to be so precise and careful and thought out. So you can't just like go around saying like, yeah, die to yourself. Because people don't understand what that means. <laughs> and they think it means like, like have no boundaries and burn yourself out. And you're just a shell that exists to serve God. And like, that's what we're seeing. But I don't think that's what it means. You know? And so I think, I guess to go back to your original question, I think if we can see, if we can start to reimagine what the self means and what it means to die to yourself and what it means to be the beloved of God, I think it's going to change a lot of, it changes a lot of other theologies. It changes the way I see myself. It changes the way I see God. It changes the way I serve God. Like, I think it changes everything to get the self right and to see yourself as the beloved of God and to no longer exist in shame and (laughs) to no longer have to like hate yourself because you're so sinful. I just imagine like people like emptying themselves to like essentially be God's puppet and that's like the opposite of it it's like you're becoming like you said more fully yourself more truly yourself what you're giving up what you're surrendering is the puppet you've made of yourself oof yeah that's good that's so good it breaks my heart the way i've seen people talk about themselves you know like I um <laughs> I got this text a few weeks ago from one of the participants who was in like my pilot cohort over the summer and she sent me this note that she found from high school. So she went to like a Christian high school and she had apparently asked her teacher like does God hate people? And so her teacher, like, wrote her this note in response, and it said, in no uncertain terms, like, yes, 
God hates sinners. And the sin cannot be separated from the person no more than like a a tree can be separated from its roots. And then there was just like this whole list of Bible verses. And then like they wrote again, like God doesn't just hate things. God hates sinners. And then like, I literally almost cried when I got to the, like, there's this little thing at the bottom that says like, does God hate me? And I just, I saw this, I just get chills thinking about this little like 16, 17 year old girl being handed this note and saying like, here's the good news of the gospel. God hates you and you're a sinner. And like, I just felt like, like she sent it to me and she was like, this makes me so thankful for your cohort. And I was like, yes, like this, this is it. This is why this work is important. Because God doesn't hate you. And it's not good news to tell someone that God hates them. It's just not. And I refuse to believe that. I refuse to accept that. And I think ultimately that's like, that's what, that's what led me down this whole path. And that's what I love about this cohort is it gives space to unlearn things like that. Like it helps you begin to notice the places in your story, the places in your faith, in your theology, that you were taught things like this. And it just gives you space to question and say like, maybe there's another way. Maybe there's another way that's biblical and and within the bounds of orthodoxy. <laughs> that gives me a new way of seeing myself and lets me exist in this sort of like joyful freedom of being the beloved of God and knowing that nothing I do or don't do or have or don't have or anything anyone else says about me, nothing shakes that. But, Melissa, I want to I wanna turn the tables. Um, cause you, you graciously agreed to be a part of my like test cohort, <laughs> my like my little cohort of guinea pigs, um, who I specifically chose because I valued like their voices and their opinions and knew that they would contribute really amazing things. And you did like <laughs> so many of the things that you said, I remember listening to you and just thinking like wow she said that better than than I do like she (laughs) it's like she's reading my notes but I never even said any of this stuff because I just felt like you you got it so well and you articulated it so well um so I would just love to ask you like what was your experience at this like what it's such a personal unique journey like what was it like for you you know when I kind of went into it, I was like not sure. 
um, like what to expect at all. Um, you know, I was, uh, when we started this, I was like right at the point of actually going back to a church, um, for the first time in two years. And I just wasn't, you know, I was, you know, I think I felt safe because I knew like the people that you were bringing in were, um, going to be safe. But I also was really working through, um, I mean, a lot of pain around being rejected um, by the church and by uh, experiencing people basically telling me uh, sim- very similar things to what you talked about earlier of God hated me. God could not accept me as I was, um, that I would need to reject such a, what felt like such a core part of myself to be acceptable in God's sight. Um, which was, you know, I am, you know, a a lesbian woman and I just got married. I did. And, but like at the time I was basically being told that I was in sin and that, you know, I was going, you know, going to go to hell because I wouldn't reject who I loved. Um, and it, you know, when I, when we got to the part of the cohort that week where we talked, I think you were talking about the true self versus the false self and like answering those questions about where we find our identity and those three questions of, you know, am I, uh, am I what I do? Am I what others say about me or am I what I have? And just sitting there, I was going through this and thinking, oh my gosh, like I've heard this before. Like I can't even remember where I had heard those three questions before um, and it might have even been at my previous church. Um, but they obviously did not follow through on, you know, belovedness. Because, like, when you went to that place of, like, these are the, these are, if you're asking yourself these questions, you're basing your identity on the false self, on this image you've created of yourself, rather than, coming from the place of you are the beloved and and I'm like okay well then that makes things like um John 3:16 make sense where it's like you know God so loved the world that he gave his only son or um the parts in Romans where it's like where Paul is writing about how nothing can like nothing can separate us from the love of God that is found in Christ Jesus and going everything they were telling me was false, you know, that I was having to earn 
my belovedness. I was having to do things and believe certain things and have certain things to find that place of peace and love and belovedness with God. And it truly set me free in the sense of like going back to a church community and being able to let myself exist in a church community, not knowing for sure um, if it was going to be an inclusive place. And it, it has turned out to be such, but like, um, I had to just like find that, like to be able to be back in that space again, I had to be okay knowing that no one in that room or a part of that community could influence me in the way that I had been previously, like essentially in a very codependent relationship with the church. Mm. Um, mm-hmm. And so, yeah, like it profoundly impacted me. Like I, you know, was talking with my wife about it on a walk the other day of just like, how the timing of it just really set me up for this place of of healing and of coming into that place of like even coming into the place of our marriage which just happened like um I was no longer getting pushed and pulled by you know the sort of the puppet strings of the way I used to be. Um, mm. And and I think that's the beauty of it too, is I'm just like at this, such this good place with God of, you know, not seeing him as this angry, hateful, spiteful God, but rather the one who created me and loves me and knows, like knew me and knew me before the foundations and like, you know, so it's just beautiful to see the ways that it was interwoven and being able to um, come out in in such a good and healthier, much more true space. I mean, and just like, I think the part of it too that I loved about being in a group was was yeah just seeing the different ways that other people experienced the false messages but then also were beginning to discover the the true messages about themselves and so that was really cool to just be a part of that because it just sort of strengthened like knowing that if it's true of them it's also true of me um and if it's true of me it's also true of them mm-hmm. um so that was what was, yeah. you know, my experience in being in the beloved cohort and um, hope more people on that can be on that journey because um, what the, as you said, the evangelical church has really set up as discipleship um, really isn't this place of Uh, helping people to a place of health and maturity. It's like, Mm. 
sadly, as we go back to it, it's like it feels like a puppet factory. <laughs> yeah, that's so true. And that's that's something I felt, too, of like. Like this idea that um, <laughs> to be a good Christian, you sort of need to like lose all the parts of you that make you you so you can just become like this little mm-hmm. christian automaton who like who like <laughs> says all the right things and does all the right things and then like you all sort of end up looking really the same and it's terrifying but it like it really is sort of how we've set up like like stop looking like yourself and look more like jesus but Jesus looks exactly like us, so mm-hmm. hope you fit into that mold. <sighs> Melissa, it makes me really, like, I love hearing about your experience. I just feel so humbled because I, it makes me just, like, really, really happy to think that these things do resonate with people and that it's it can be meaningful to others because like that was my dream that was my dream of like the other people can start on this journey and mine my journey's not done your journey's not done but man it changes everything when you start to see yourself yeah. Through eyes of love. And when you start to see others through eyes of love. Like you said, like if this is true of me, it's true of you. And if it's true of you, it's true of me. Like how you see one thing mm-hmm. is how you see everything. And I I think man. It is. It's gonna change the world. It is. <laughs> one beloved cohort at a time. But no, I mean, genuinely, I hate sounding like a marketing plug, but the Beloved Cohort is something you can sign up for, dear listener, as a as an offering of people who see. So we run these cohorts throughout the year, and you can find out more on our website, and you can sign up, or you can ask questions, and you can see what we walk through each week, the different practices, the different questions. Um, it's all there. And I really genuinely hope that you will risk the vulnerability of being a part of that because it is scary and it is difficult. It's a difficult journey to let go of the false self. It's not easy. It's painful. And Risking the vulnerability of doing that with a group is scary, but I mean, the first group, the first cohort was such a beautiful group of safe people who just like held such beautiful space for each other. And that's what I want for each of them, that there's no judgment. It's just a circle of trust and safety and we can support each other. So we don't have to go on this journey alone. You don't have to walk through 
the difficulties of unlearning shame and letting go of the false self on your own. Like that's, that's, I feel like I had to walk a lot of this journey by myself and I'm sure you felt that way too, Melissa, on certain parts of your journey. And so like we understand the loneliness of that and having this cohort is a way to not Mm -hmm. have to walk that journey alone and to be with people who feel the same things you feel and have the same longings that you have to just like know that you're unshakably loved and you can have that safe space and that support as you walk on that journey but I think we did I think we did it Melissa I think we I think we did it I'm really happy and I really hope everyone goes to our website peoplewhosee.com Signs up for the beloved cohort, learns more. Do it. And thanks for listening, beautiful people. We'll see you. We'll see you here next time. Thank you so much for listening. Do you have or know of a story that needs to be heard? Keep the conversation going by following us on Facebook or Instagram and sharing this conversation with someone else who needs to be a part of it. Or, if you're like Beth and social media isn't your thing, you can visit our website, peoplewhosee.com. Be sure to follow us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts so you never miss an episode. And if you loved an episode, rate, review, and share. Your support ensures that more stories are being heard and more questions are being asked.